Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Black Dog Institute's e-mental health in practice podcast series for health professionals. I'm Phoebe Holdenson Kamira, a GP with an interest in mental health. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from webinar 51 on internet gaming disorder. The guests on the webinar were Dr. Vasilia Stravopoulos from Victoria University, who's an academic and professional psychologist working in the area of disordered gaming. Dr. Hilary Cash is a psychologist based in America, who is the co-founder and chief clinical officer for the Restart Centre for Digital Technology Sustainability, the first long-stay retreat program for adults with internet gaming disorder in North America. In this webinar, we discussed gaming behaviours that are related to high risk for disordered gaming, how game-related mechanics can be integrated into case formulation and guide treatment planning, and online resources useful for families and people suffering from internet gaming disorder. Vasilios, can you um, start us off? What exactly is internet gaming disorder? So internet gaming disorder or gaming disorder or disordered gaming or gaming addiction, um, we will be using the term internet gaming disorder because this is the, the suggested term uh, by the, the American Psychiatric Association 2013, is a, is a form of addiction. And as a form of addiction, a behavioral addiction, um, needs to satisfy six criteria, six points. The first is what we call salience, which means once um, one has a specific frequency of engaging with games, once per day, twice per day. Um, the next thing is mood modification. One is gaming to moderate the way they feel. They initially start to feel better and they progressively um, continue just to feel less worse. Then we have what we call tolerance, which means they gradually need higher doses of the behavior to achieve the same outcome. And this, to some extent, is related to the game mechanics. Um, we also have withdrawal symptoms. Uh, in, in the case of internet gaming disorder, these are mostly psychological, such as irritability and frustration when one is not in the game, not online. Uh, we also have conflicts and functional impairment. So the moment that the behavior establishes, um, debates, disagreements emerge with significant others in the context of the person, parents, friends, peers, romantic engagements, if one has one. Um, and finally, what we call relapse, which is um, they wish to abstain, they wish to reduce their time gaming, but they often find themselves very difficult to achieve that. Mm. Um, and you may hear them saying, you know, I I wanted to, but I, you know, I couldn't. It indicates a kind of inconsistency between the way they think, their decision-making processes, and the way they act. Mm, so all of this, all of this Criteria, six criteria, salience, mood modification, tolerance, withdrawal symptoms, conflicts, and relapses um, in relation to gaming constitute internet gaming disorder. Mm. Or what are the functions uh, that, that exist when somebody um, uh, starts to suffer from internet gaming disorder? So we have three, three addictive functions, we call them in psychology. Uh, the first is lack of substantiate relationships. So one might be surrounded by others, but they don't um, have a substantiate connection with them to, to feel relief or to share the way they feel, or they could be completely lonely. The second is what we call lack of boundaries or control. And this is manifested in the way they, uh, they use their space, their rooms might be messy, their time, they might be awake at night, 
playing during the day, playing during the night, sleeping in the day, um, the way they use their money, they handle their money, spending. Um, and finally, the third addictive function has to do with lack of responsibility, accountability, and occasionally, occasionally manipulation. So the, the person often blames others for what's been happening in their lives. Mm. And it's the first step of treatment to introduce this sense of responsibility, responsibility and accountability. Vash shared with us the three main behavioural elements of internet gaming disorder. The need for immediate gratification, lack of impulse control, and compulsive tendencies. Hilary, what, what do you see um, in clinical practice in, in the patients? Well, it strikes me that these elements are probably elements that are you're going to find in all addictions mm-hmm. you know there and i think all addiction all addicts are wanting immediate gratification and the quicker the gratification comes uh which it comes very quickly when it comes to the internet and and especially with gaming then kind of the more um the quicker the addiction takes hold mm-hmm. and um you know and impulsivity and compulsion i just think these are things that go along with all addictions and we certainly see it with gaming disorder. Yeah. And I'm thinking that uh, when that prefrontal cortex is still developing uh, in, in an adolescent, they are already going to struggle with those, these features. uh, Yes. And, and I believe there is uh, mounting research that shows that um, when children are engaged with gaming at an early age, it really impedes the development of the prefrontal cortex. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So Vas, tell us, um, how do we, what, what's the diagnostic criteria for internet gaming disorder, given that there are so many people out there who, who are worried um, that their child or um, their spouse might have, might be addicted to games? What, how do we actually go about establishing? <coughs> so we have two main pathways. One is APA 2013 DSM-5, where internet gaming disorder has been suggested to be a conditional diagnosis. So not a formal diagnosis, a conditional one based on nine criteria, which resemble a lot the six criteria of addictions that we defined earlier, plus um, some extra uh, behaviors, preoccupation, silence, which we saw before, withdrawal symptoms, we saw that, tolerance, we saw that, tried to stop but has failed to do so, relapses, loss of interest in other life activities, impacting a person's life, functional impairment, lie to others, deception, manipulation. We saw it before in the addictive functions. One is gaming to escape the way they feel, mood modification, and they put at risk an opportunity and relations and, and, or, in a, or a relationship uh, due to gaming. So if one presents with five out of these nine criteria for over the period of a year, then it is suggested that they should receive this provisional diagnosis. When it comes to ICD-11, six years later, 2019, in the beta draft, uh, the criteria were significantly simplified. We have only three. Impaired control over gaming, the impulse control component. Gaming takes precedence over other life interests, loss of interest, and continuation of gaming despite the occurrence of negative consequences. And these, of course, need to, need to, need to occur for more than a year, mm. and independent of whether the game is online or offline, PV, person versus environment, I play by myself against the game, the game world, or PVP, person versus person, I play with multiple people in it. So the type of the game doesn't make a difference. Yeah. It's, it's the behaviors. Criteria. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. 
So let's think now about uh, our case scenario for tonight. His name is John. John's a 35-year-old man who works as a builder in a company that's owned by his cousin. He's married with two children and has no previous mental health history. He lives with his, with his family on the ground floor of the building owned by his wife's family. He doesn't have any siblings and he's generally a pretty quiet person. And he was never particularly studious, but he always had friends and he liked playing footy, you know, all throughout his adult life. He met his wife when he was 20 and they've been together since then, and they're, but they're currently attending couples therapy because things aren't going so well. The previous summer, he went and visited a friend from work with his family. Uh, and since then, he's been playing a game with that friend and a whole group of friends from work. And this game is called Tribal. He's never, he was never really interested in playing games before. Tribal's a strategy game where one's supposed to lead a country and have allies and enemies and opponents. There's also a forum where people can be informed about developments in the game, even when they're not playing. And his co-players are mostly from the same ethnic background. His wife comes to you with him just exhausted and fed up. He's playing for more than seven hours a day every weekday and more than 10 hours a day on the weekends every day, which means that he sleeps in every opportunity he has because he's just so tired. She says to you, he doesn't want to take part in anything anymore. It's like I've got a third child in the house. It's either the game or me. Now, uh, I guess something that really sticks out to me in this is that it's the wife who's brought him along or They've gone to couples therapy together, but it's really the wife who's driving a lot of this. Is that something that you see a lot in your work, Hilary? Um, yes. <clears throat> I think it's important for people to keep in mind that addicts live inside a bubble of denial. Mm -hmm. And until that bubble sort of crumbles, they are uh, not going to seek help on their own. And so it is usually a family member who is, you know, who takes the initiative, who recognizes there's a serious problem and is going to, you know, drag the person in to get help. So that's uh, very, com totally common in our own experience. Yeah, that's right. But that, that um, makes it difficult to engage them, isn't it? If they're not really that keen to be there. I don't know, Bas, what do you reckon? I think I would agree with Hillary, but I would also say that the fact that they are there mm -hmm. means that there is something inside them that agrees, even silently, with the fact that there is a problem. Yeah. Is it a healthy voice inside the, the client, the person, that we need to ally with and strengthen? Because they, mm -hmm. do, they do know deep inside them, if we get a little bit scratch the surface, they know that there is an issue. Yeah, right. That's, that's and really something I would like to add to that is I, I agree completely, um, but I also think that if it is possible to set it up such that the person actually um, is abstinent for a good long period of time from the gaming or from whatever the internet-based uh, problem behavior is, that the brain will go through the changes of coming back to more normal function. And then it becomes so much easier for them to gain perspective on themselves and their behavior, how it's impacted uh, the world around them in their immediate environment. And, and they tend to be much easier 
you know, they, they tend to see that there is a problem they have to work on. So that's ideal. Yeah. And probably their, cou- their couple's counselling will go a bit, be a bit more um, productive as well, I, I suspect. Mm-hmm. So, Hilary, when you, when you listen to this story about John, what's, what sticks out to you? Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is that um, it's unusual for him to, be, to develop a gaming addiction when he's 35 years old. Sure. Because he's, he's fallen off the cliff, as I say <laughs> about addiction, at that age, it means that he has many, many strengths to fall back on. He has a whole lifetime of good, healthy experiences of relationships and work and so forth. Um, and because of that, I think he'll be much easier to work with than someone who doesn't come with that background. Right, as opposed to somebody who's been gaming excessively since they were a child or in their early adolescence, they might be lacking right. those social skills and so on. Yeah, that, well, that that's really um, positive, isn't it? It's, it's good to know that yeah. um, John's probably going to have a good prognosis if, if he engages with this process. Um, Vass, is there anything else that sticks out to you um, in this story? I would just like to highlight one thing that mm. the game one chooses usually very often tends to compensate, substitute something that they are missing in their real lives. Yeah. Game tribal is a strategy game where one needs to expand territory. And you mentioned earlier that this guy is living at the ground floor at the ground floor of a three floors building with um, with his wife's family. So I'm I'm thinking of space, and I would I would try to explore that. And always the game itself that one becomes addicted to has a meaning. Keeps yeah, them. right. So so he he doesn't necessarily feel uh, you know that he has control over his own physical space or the territory that he's living in, well, maybe he's trying to seek that elsewhere. That's really, that's a very deep, um, deep, deep understanding. Thanks, Bess. Mm-hmm. So what is it that causes internet gaming disorder, Bess? Um, what causes it? We need to, we need to seek the, the sources of the problem in three main domains. Mm-hmm. The first is the person themselves, who the person is and what they bring with them. The second is where the real surrounding of the person and how this surrounding could be pushing them to escape online. And the third is where virtually, what's happening in the game world? What type of mechanics are active there to engage the gamer? And I think we need to, to explore all these sources concurrently. Mm, so that's really important in the history taking, isn't it? Um, so when we talk about who, you know, who's at risk, um, what sort of personality types are more at risk of developing disordered gaming? So based on the five big traits, personality theory, we have findings consistently longitudinal, cross-sectional, uh, and across different cultural populations and age groups of gamers that those who tend to be more conscientious, more responsible, more accountable, tend to be at lower risk for IDD, and the same is the case with other forms of addictions. And those who tend to be more open to experience tend to be um, at higher risk. And we also have some evidence for neurotis, neuroticism, which has to do with less emotional stability that increases the risk, and psychoticism the same. So personality-wise, just keep that in mind. Mm. Hilary, do you have anything to add here? Well, I think we'll, there will come a point where I'm going to want to talk about eye disorder. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't, is this the moment? Or no, go for <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> okay. So there is a book that I will want to recommend to everyone. Larry Rosen wrote it about 10 or 11 years ago. It's called I with a small I, I hyphen disorder. And he's proposing that there should be a new category of personality disorder. And it is, uh, it draws traits from several of the other personality disorders. They coalesce uh, again and again. And we have confirmed this by uh, giving for many years, we gave all of our incoming adults the MCMI, which is very good at, at drawing out personality disorders. Mm -hmm. And the traits that we see coalescing again and again are avoidance, dependence, narcissism, and antisocial, and then a smattering of others as show well. But all. those are the four that show up most consistently. And um, so if and and I do believe it is the result of a childhood lived in front of screens uh, and and playing a lot of video games. Bas, can you tell us a little bit about um, other psychopathology and its relationship to internet gaming disorder? So we have longitudinal evidence, which had empirical evidence and cross-like panel designs, which suggest that an internet gaming disorder tends to be what we call a secondary symptom, which flourishes on the ground of another primary symptom, another problem. It's the problematic solution of a pre-existing problem. Okay. But later on, this problematic solution becomes the exacerbator, the catalyst of the pre-existing problem. So one might be anxious, depressed, distressed, whatever. They escape through games. Their problems become bigger and the downward spiral comes. And I saw, I saw in the chat questions around autism, spectrum disorder, and ADHD. I think Hillary will address the ADHD part. But considering autism, yes, there has been evidence, once again, consistently, um, in, consistently suggesting that they are at higher risk. And the explanation, the hypothesis there is that cyber relationships, anonymity, accessibility, affordability, do not involve emotional and face-to-face -face, uh, contact skills required in, 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 in real life. And therefore, these people might might find themselves there, you know, more. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, isn't it? Hilary, can you tell us about um, what you see in terms of the um, the co coexisting mental health disorders? Yeah, the, there are four primary ones for the clients who come to restart. They are first and foremost depression and anxiety. Almost everyone who comes in is depressed, sometimes mildly, sometimes suicidally, um, but everyone is depressed. And very interestingly, uh, for most of them, after a month of being away from screens, you know, catching up on sleep, eating well, getting exercise, being social, um, they stop being depressed, Amazing. but they come in depressed. They come in anxious. They uh, the majority of them have a diagnosis of ADHD and uh, about a third of them come in. Well, they don't necessarily come in with the diagnosis, but they show traits that we associate with autism spectrum disorder. But I do want to just comment that I, we, our stance at restart, oh, which is born from experience, is to be skeptical about the diagnoses that they come in with. Mm. Um and to recognize that often what has occurred is that, first of all, uh, the diagnostician 
didn't find out about, didn't make the inquiry to understand that really what's going on often is first and foremost, the addiction. And that once the addiction clears up, these other things may also clear up. And if you think about ADHD being mostly a problem of attention and a short attention span, um, what if you think about a child who from a very early age, and remember now kids, infants are being handed uh, screens and, and invited to play infant games on screens, you can really get a child's brain wired for short attention span. And so they're, and, and to be highly stimulated. So they may really look like they have ADHD and I'm just always a little bit skeptical about yeah, that. Right. And the same with uh, autism spectrum disorder. If you put a young child too much in front of a screen, not enough attention and, and social interaction with uh, the family and, and other people, you may end up with a child who doesn't inter- who's more attached to a screen than to people, doesn't pick up social cues and, uh, you know, looks like they yeah. have. So depriving them those opportunities to actually yeah. develop those skills. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously people game for a reason. They're getting some sort of meaning out of it. Um, Fast, can you tell us um, how that all, yeah, ha- how people people do that? I guess I guess your question, Phoebe, ties very well with the other two sources of the problem that we mentioned before: what's happening in one's surrounding and what's happening within the game world. So, all of us are seeking meaning in our lives, and empirical evidence in positive psychology suggests that we have four channels to achieve meaning a happy life. One is a sense of belonging in a community, family, community, political kind of group, anything. Um, The second is a sense of purpose, a life direction. We are heading towards something. The third is challenge, getting out of our comfort zone, um, achieving things, growing. And the fourth is personal narrative. It's who we are at the end of the day and how happy we are with who we are. So in surroundings where people cannot address these sources Mm. of meaning. They don't have purpose. They don't feel that they belong. They don't feel well well with their personal narrative, the way they present, or they may not be challenged. In these contexts, they are at risk to be pushed in the world of the game. And then the game comes in, and with what we call online flow, offers them, that we will talk later on about, I think uh, offers them purpose and challenge, It's the level of one's engagement with what they do in the game. Uh, Belonging is covered by what we call telepresence, and especially a component of social telepresence, which is the sense of being in the virtual world with others and living my fantasy or playing the game with others being there. And the final thing, the personal narrative, is fulfilled, addressed by the user avatar bot, by the way the user might create a character in the world of the game, especially what we call role-playing games, where one is represented by a figure which is called the avatar, and the figure develops in a way which is quite parallel to the way we develop in real life. So early stages, early levels, they get equipment the same way that we attend education and we get degrees, and then they form relationships, they form alliances, they have enemies later on. Um, So within this storytelling of the game, one develops a storytelling of who they are. So I guess with this, we cover both these sources in, in a broad way. Yes. In a context where one cannot find meaning, 
and in a game where they can find me. Where they can. So it's that push-pull, isn't it? And it's, it yeah. can be found quite easily within the game setting. Yeah. And I would like to just add that that slide, I think for clinicians, is the most important slide of this whole talk. Because mm. if you are actually doing clinical work, if you, if you can focus in on these four elements, um, you're going to get, you know, I think your chances of success are pretty high. Yeah, to really understand what's driving people mm -hmm. um, because that's going to be the solution to actually um, finding meaning outside of the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Hilary. Isidon has suggested that the one's avatar is the royal way to the unconscious. We need to ask them about who they are in the game. Who they are in the game reflects a lot about how they would get out of the game, as Hilary suggested earlier. Yeah, right. And, and that's something... really well, well, something I would add here is that through all of this process, um, they truly come to identify as gamers. They don't just identify as with their avatar, which also they're doing, but they have developed, they've invested so much time in their game, in their avatar, being successful within a gaming community, often within a, a what they experience as a close-knit community, that they really develop a an identity. I am a gamer, and um, and I'm a gamer more than I am anything else. I am a gamer, and 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 that is part of what is becomes a stumbling block in the course of treatment because uh, they've invested so much they really don't want to give up that identity. Hillary, I'm interested to know from you. Uh, lots of people are worried that that particularly children, um, you know, engaging in these sorts of behaviors. Uh, might translate to, to, to things in the real world. What's your view on that? My view is that I, I think that the more we do something, the more our brains are wired to do it. And, and I think the evidence is actually very strong that even if um, somebody who plays a lot of uh, video games, violent video games, doesn't behave in a violent manner out in the world, they often think violent thoughts right. and they have increased uh, aggressive feelings and decreased empathy. Right. So I, I think it is problematical for children to be playing violent games. And there is just so much harm there, isn't it? Even if it's at a, at a psychological yeah. level. Hillary and Vash shared their views that the incidence of internet gaming disorder is likely to increase. For the game publisher to make the game more engaging for the user, the behavior of the user is observed. There are data points in terms of how one engages with the game and what makes them more engaged. And these data game, they, these data points inform algorithms, machine learning processes, um, which customize the interface of the game to the specific gamer, so so that the gamer becomes more um, more engaged. So algorithms, in a way, function as exacerbators of presence, flow, and the user avatar bond. Because observing the gamer, you know the recipe, you know how to cook the ingredients together. Right. For them, I mean, a different interface would engage Hillary and me more in the same game. And games have the capacity to diversify yeah. in, 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 and to adjust to the needs of the gamers. So I would suggest that, you know, in terms of policies, companies need to reveal the fact that they are using algorithms in the games. Yeah, because to me that actually sounds quite unethical, isn't it? Really, the games are sort of hacking our brains, and uh, and they're on steroids. Tell us, 
Um, what percentage of gamers have, have uh, who, who ends up getting internet gaming addiction? So overall, we know, I mean, recent meta-analysis suggests that four, approximately 4% of gamers across different national samples assessed with the same measures, um, comparable measures, presents with internet gaming disorder. When it comes to lifespan, we have adolescents emerged adulthood. Um, during adolescence, part game participation increases between 12 to 16 for the normative population, and then decreases after the age of 16. Internet gaming disorder establishes, emerges during adolescence and emergent adulthood, which is 18 to 29. Um, for the majority of those who are going to suffer, we have more males than females. When somebody with internet gaming disorder does come to us, um, what, are the, what are the helpful questions to ask? Hilary, first, um, how do you go about this? Okay, well, what I think is, of course, you want to get down to the nitty gritty of, of their play. How often do they play? When do they play? Where do they play? Um, and all of that, and time and content of the gaming and those questions that Vas has already uh, shown us, uh, all of that you want to be asking about. But additionally, I think it's very, very important to really take a very holistic approach and understand that gaming is having an effect um, on, on their, them physically and socially. So you wanna be asking questions about their social life, their family life, their social interactions. You wanna be asking questions about their physical health, how much they're sleeping and this kind of thing. And, um, and understand that gaming, it may be where they put the majority of their time, but they are also probably going to be engaged in many other things online, mm. uh, social media, pornography, um, and so forth, shopping. And so it's, it's just important to have a very holistic, broad um, look at, at what they're doing and in their lives and how it's affecting them. What are the sorts of common physical problems that you tend to see, Hilary? The chronic sleep deprivation, malnourishment, um, and either underweight or overweight. And, and really, it, it can be quite extraordinary and, and extreme, um, the, the degree to which some of our gamers come in underweight. Uh, what I think a way to think about it is that the mesmerizing effect of the screen and the game is so strong that it overrides the body's natural needs. So the need for sleep, the need to eat, the need to move and, and social needs, the need to be interacting socially um, face to face with other people. All of these needs, which are deep and profound to us as human beings, get overridden by the effect of the the games or whatever we're engaged with. So mm -hmm. leading to the underweight or overweight, low vitamin D, they're poorly conditioned and hygiene problems, you know, dental Gosh. problems because they haven't been um, brushing yeah, their teeth. Themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And why is it important to talk to them about their romantic or sexual life? Well, <laughs> I think it's extremely important because most of the people that I've worked with over these many years um, are males and most of them have been uh, involved with pornography since a very early age. And the mm. pornography has led them off the track 
the sort of normal developmental track, you know, through adolescence, um, we're usually start learning the skills to be able to, the normal track is we learn the skills through adolescence to be able to, you know, we learn to flirt and we learn how to engage with the people we're involved with and start to date and eventually bring sexuality into that. But the gamers that we work with, they've never dated. They have just had a heavy dose of pornography throughout their lives, even if they're in their mid to late 20s, they've not dated. So we call this having an intimacy disorder where they don't know how to initiate, build or maintain intimate, healthy relationships. When it comes to a therapeutic approach, Fash shared with us his view that parental controls are not very effective and most children will find workarounds if they're motivated enough. What works is to understand what they are doing in the game, mm. who they are, how they are seen by others, um, how would they describe themselves. Use this third uh, empty chair question. If your co-gamers were here, how would they describe you? Yeah. Uh, what's your name in the game? If this avatar was here, how would they describe they describe their real their, their virtual life? Knowing these things, you understand how to map their way out of the game. Mm. What keeps them in the game um, uh, betrays the way to take them out. Hilary, can you tell us about Restart's clinical approach to... I'd be happy to, but I do want to just mention something um, related to what we were just discussing, which is that it is so important when you're assessing someone who's come in, what is happening within the family itself? What are the family dynamics? How are the parents using their screens? You know, what are the rules? What are the relationship of the of the gamer to the other family members and... Uh, and, and all of that is extremely important uh, to approach when you're actually doing the clinical work. If you uh, work with a client in isolation without working with the family, um, you often not are not going anywhere. to be successful. Yeah, so I just right. wanted to say that. And that's part of our clinical approach is to include the family in the work we do with the adults as well as with the adolescents. Um, we, we, have our clients away from screens for three months. Uh, so they really go through a physiological, a lot of physiological change. Mm. Um, they usually are out of denial by the end of three months and ready to really engage in the work. They, they create a, during that time period, a life balance plan, which, um, and that life balance plan is really the plan of how it's going to be the blueprint for how they're going to con- go back into the world where screens are all around them. How are they going to manage all of that? What will their screen use look like? Identify the top lines, which are the things that are going to keep them healthy and on a recovery track. The middle lines, which are the danger zones and the bottom lines, which are the things that they're just not going, they're agreeing they're not going to engage with anymore. Um and so we slowly reintroduce the screens through our transition program and we have them engaged, both they and their parents, if we can talk the parents into it, engaged in some sort of a community recovery support. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a, que- it's a question that's come up in the question in the chat box, but, you know, in Australia, we don't have access to that sort of um, uh, uh, inpatient um, unit. Um, so f- for people who can't fully disengage, what are the other options for, to have to, to simulate that sort of three-month unplugging? 
So well, I do think that if if we're talking about children and and you as a clinician are working with the parents, um, I highly recommend the approach that is written up in in the book Reset Your Child's Brain by Victoria Dunkley. And she recommends a one month period of abstinence for a child from screens. Sure. Yep. And during that time, engaging in a good, healthy conversation with the child and all of the family members about what the rules are going to be right. when, once they do re-engage. So doing that, I think, is a wonderful way to approach it. The trouble is, I think many families, many parents don't have the skills to do that or the situation has gotten just too out, so of, out of control. And it's behaviors. too violent or, right. or whatever. And so seek you know, seek help. professional help. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to share with you um, some specific online tools that you might find helpful for your clients. Uh, first up, we have um, Online Gamers Anonymous, which is a 12-step self-help group online um, that's very similar to Alcoholics Anonymous, where members can share their stories uh, and keep one another accountable as they seek to uh, recover from internet gaming disorder. There's also uh, a program called Game Quitters, uh, which has program for gamers called Respawn and one for family members called Reclaim uh, that also has community forums, videos and a directory for therapists who specialise in the area. Uh, Game Aware uh, is an Australian-based program that provides mentoring and group programs for children and young adults with internet gaming disorder and a specialised group for gamers with an ASD diagnosis. Smart Recovery Australia is an online resource that uh, is aligned with the University of Wollongong, uh, which is an app that helps people manage and overcome addictive behaviours, including uh, internet gaming disorder. Uh, there's quite a lot of information on the eSafety Commissioner website um, and for parents and for children around um, setting limits and, and you know, make, making sure that your children can be using um, online resources safely because there's a lot of harms out there when we think about gamers i mean these are uh, people who are pretty comfortable using technology and as we've said uh, you know they're very likely to have another mental health disorder as well and so i'd like to um, encourage you to think about using resources such as this way up which is a fantastic online manualized cbt resource uh, for many many conditions uh, both depression and anxiety. Uh, we also have um, Smiling Mind. I'm sure most of you are familiar uh, with Smiling Mind, but what you may not know is that um, they have a specific digital detox program within their app that supports individuals to take a break from technology and reconnect with your surroundings. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast on internet gaming disorder. A resource sheet containing all the resources and services that we've discussed are available via the Black Dog Institute website under the eMental Health in Practice page. Thank you so much for listening today. Until next time, bye.